This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. back everybody i'm glad you're with me it's a pretty somber morning after a night where i thought we'd be able to talk about the the joy the bafflement the invention the confusion the heartbreak the aggression the arguments the the invention everything that has made the world cup over its existence an event which polarizes opinion which causes massive waves of euphoria and despair and instead it's a broadcast where it's going to test me a great deal um, because the only place to start is with the genuinely tragic death of Grant Wall once of Sports Illustrated now of CBS who died in the media tribune last night when the Holland-Argentina game was in an extra time. It's a moment, first of all, to say that for his family, uh, this must be beyond unbearable. It must feel like they've been robbed of somebody. His brother, um, for whom he wore that rainbow T-shirt, trying to go into one of their early games, a Wales game. His brother has spoken out in social media saying, I'm gay. I'm the reason that Grant wore that T-shirt trying to get into the stadium. But but of course, given how pugnacious and opinionated Grant was about things that he had issues with, the likelihood is because of the way that Qatar treats homosexuality and the rights that gay people don't have I think there's every chance Grant would have worn that t-shirt anyway he'd been ill for a few days with something that the medical centre that was available to all journalists had diagnosed as likely to be bronchitis and he died it's it's a loss of somebody who I've known a little bit. The first person to rave about Grant to me was Gabriel Marcotti, who said that he was the, by far the preeminent writer on, on sport, but particularly football. 
in the US, Gabriel, and I'm now talking maybe 15, 16 years ago, said that he felt Grant Wall was one of the leading writers on sport in the world. It was long-form pieces for Sports Illustrated, a, an organisation that he fell out with a little bit when he left them, um, but he lit up while he was there. Those long reads were researched and thoughtful and provocative and interesting. And the people who broadcast, who edit and publish this um, podcast, the people, Neil and Martin, who persuaded me to write books, who invented the big interview format idea and who are editing this right now, got involved with Grant and his one of his books and, and met him and worked with him, talked to him. They'll be shocked uh, now. And it's at a time like this when you revert to, to training, I think. It's a fact that, that Grant posted that he was feeling overworked, that his body was giving up on him and that he needed to go and visit the medics. It's a fact that he said that it was lack of sleep and, and stress. I can um, equate very easily with what Grant posted when he was feeling unwell about lack of sleep, about stress. And it's a fact that almost all reporters now are asked to, to do more, to work longer, to undergo more stress. There'll be many, many football reporters and broadcasters, technicians, cameramen, editors today thinking, I need to reevaluate. And it would be utterly wrong of me not to stop and say footballers are still being treated by the game they love as cattle as commodities out of whom I don't want to squeeze everything, but the pronoun to be used is we squeeze everything because until until many of us either speak out or boycott or attempt to lobby those various bodies and people who think that footballers are there simply to please us, to be brought out like Russell Crowe in the Colosseum, and say, entertain us. Until there is a realisation that this is not overpaid namby-pambies saying we're tired. We're doing something similar to footballers and, and those who cover football in, in this extreme, in the 90-degree heat of Qatar, in a World Cup where many reporters felt not only privileged to but obliged to go to two games and two press conferences a day because, effectively, this is a Doha World Cup. It's like having the World Cup in, effectively, in Madrid or, or London, something like that, in terms of area, in terms of accessibility. But the trend is changing. The trend is to um, feel obliged to, to do more and more. The trend is changing in that many organisations, many bosses simply say, Give me more. Consistently, give me more and more and more. I've seen people in tears. I've seen people stressed out of their minds and not coping. I don't know what the repercussions from this tragic happening will be, but I know that's left me touched. It's left me sad. Again, another fact is that although there were times when I took issue with some of Grant's ideas and, and directions... I think 
that that is certainly the case of what people will think about the way I've used my abilities. And therefore, I'm only being honest in saying that occasionally I thought Grant had a charge at things that I'd have treated differently. But I knew he was a, a sincere man, an epic talent, an epically intense worker. And the causes that he took up before and during the World Cup, I agreed with. So at this moment, rest in peace, Grant Wall. And for those of you who didn't tune in for this kind of tribute or, or for this kind of consideration, well, I'm surprised because this was more important than anything happened on the pitch. started by saying that this was a bitter way to come out of the the idyll that was the first night of quarterfinal action in Qatar because there was extraordinary, extraordinary invention and controversy and joy and tragicomedy on the pitch some of the things that Grant should still be around to cover. And for those who didn't watch or for those who are now just trying to luxuriate in another view of the first match, the Croatia-Brazil game, some things um, I think naturally come to my mind in that Brazil's goal, Brazil's performance, where I think they have, oh, I don't know how many shots on target, 11 on target maybe, and another few that went went awry. When you think about Dominic Livakovic, you hear that quote about, you know, football is a simple game that we complicate because Livakovic, unlike a, a friend of the big interview, Emi Martinez, who I'll come on to uh, in a bit, Livakovic unquestionably was the hero of the first quarter final. 
But he did it. He, he assumed that mantle of hero with such calmness, making everything that he did, all the saves that he produced, seem so matter of fact. A man completely within himself, as if to say, nothing to see here, as he made save after save, often one-on-one. The saves that I, I would admit I like best. The shots from distance where a keeper stretches fully and tips away are spectacular. They're the ones that make you go, wow. But the one-on-one where it's a duel, where it's high noon, where a keeper has to react in terms of do I stay, do I sprint? When I sprint, if I'm in movement and he jinks or he touches the ball, am I lost? All of those things that I've said in about three seconds, they have to they have to calculate in three hundredths of a second. And maybe Livakovic's performance isn't like going to be recorded as the number one goalkeeping display of all time. But he shone for me. He stood out so much. In a team, he embodied the uh, the idea that we've seen from Croatia, playing well or bad or badly, since they they really hit our, all our consciousness. Unless you're Croatian, in 1996, with some unbelievable moments in in the European Championship. But from then until now, what they've stood for is a relatively small, relatively new nation, which. And people tell me, Danny Olmo, a Spaniard who I like very much and respect, a multilingual Spaniard, a young Catalan who speaks very good English, very good Croatian, and is learning German, as well as Catalan and Spanish. Olmo talked to me last summer about the Croatian mentality that while he'd been playing for Dinamo Zagreb, he'd, he'd adored how they're never beaten, how they their passion about a sport gets transferred into pugnaciousness. Not arrogance, but robust, industrial rubber. We will take any blows you throw at us. If you offer us a chance, we'll take it. We'll be there. We, When you think we're Glenn Close in the bath and whatever that, was it fatal instinct? And, and everybody thinks the baddie's dead and up she comes. That's Croatia. And Livkovic excuse me, Livakovic embodied that in that he was totally imperturbable. Nothing that this mighty Brazil threw at him made him act as if there was, this was anything more than an intense training session. I loved watching that. I loved the way in which Croatia, although outplayed, still tried to play. And I'll tell you this, I was speaking to a great friend of mine, um, just after the game, Arif Effendi, and I said, I didn't really, truly know which way the penalty shootout would go. I, I, I actually thought that Croatia would still have to do something absolutely spectacular to win the penalty shootout, despite people saying, well, the momentum was with them because I trusted the Brazilian players largely to, to, to put eight or nine out of ten in, and they didn't. But the one thing I did feel sure about, and sometimes it's pure instinct, and sometimes it's having been reporting on football for 30 years you, and watching it for, how long have I been watching it? 50 years? You, your brain transmits ideas that might not be fully conscious. But what I was absolutely sure of was that Croatia were fully likely to get an equaliser, irrespective of how late Neymar had scored. When he picks the ball up, 
and starts a run so deep in the pitch. Given goal with Rodrigo and a given goal with, I'm certain it was Paqueta, and the left foot shunt, just like deadening the ball off the cushion in, in snooker to leave the white ball buried in a, in, in a place that your opponent doesn't want. That little touch from Paqueta off his left foot into Neymar, who dances around Livakovic, was an extraordinary goal. And Croatia's equaliser, in a way, tells us or, or emphasises to us why people all the time talk. There are many terms in football which I think are useless. And for a while, I didn't understand transitions and transitional football. And it, I suppose it's just a, a clever reworking of the idea of counter-attack. And in, anybody who's a fan of the big interview will have heard me asking, I can't quite, was it Damien Duff I asked about? What is transition? And it's where you are as the phase of the game goes from one team having the ball and attacking, being robbed, and the transitioning of play from defending to attacking. I don't see what was wrong with counter-attacking. But nonetheless, when... When And I'm certain that Modric got a lot of credit for turning, physically turning, his much-beloved ex-teammate Casemiro. But I'm sure that as Modric turns him, I'm sure it's Casemiro who sets the ball away. And at that point, something pretty special happens, I think. Because as Vlasic and Orsic combine to set up Petkovic, first of all, crucial, I think, Three subs. This has been a World Cup in, in, in this brutal year where last summer, the summer of 21, there was the European Championships, there was Copa America, there was the Olympics. And then into this season whereby the Champions League was finished in early, the group stage in early November. A month, a month ahead of when it's normally finished. In other words, players with their bodies and minds pushed to limits that they've never had to be pushed to before. Substitutes and, and the adept using of which substitute for what reason and then how they performed was always going to be literally crucial in this, more, that, more so than ever in my view. But when those three, Flasic, Orsic and then Petkovic combined, the reason I mentioned transitional football is that I think it's Casemiro in trying to rob Modric who kicks the ball forward. And at that point, if you look at Marquinhos and Thiago Silva, they're wildly in the wrong place. And the easiest thing in the world to do is to criticise them and say, look, senior players should be... And often I'll do this on Liga television when we've got the touchscreen and you're analysing particularly if I see repeat mistakes or fundamentally stupid mistakes, laziness, you highlight it. In this instance, those two guys, Thiago Silva at an age when footballers used to be retired, never mind anchoring a World Cup, potentially World Cup winning team. Militao and Thiago Silva, pardon me, are in the wrong positions and they, they just react incorrectly. And there's one run... Um, I forget who it's from, across, I think it's Budimir, takes a run across the Brazilian defence, making them for a split second be unsure about whether they should attack the left winger or follow Budimir. And as a result, when the assist comes in, 
Brazil are all over the place. They've just taken too long in in split seconds to work out what they should be doing. That leaves a desperate Croatia who've suddenly thrown six players up, albeit that they are in an all-or-nothing moment. But when Orsic crosses for Petkovic, Brazil's defence are all over the place, the back four, and the midfield hasn't worked back quickly enough in order to prevent Petkovic firing home and making all Dinamo Zagreb fans, the very place where I was talking about Dani Olmo playing, erupt, every Croatia fan erupt, and set up a final, which Croatia won with nonchalance. I want to mention Elvir Islamovic, my friend and colleague, who is Croatian and who writes for UEFA and who is doing the, the job I did for with Spain in Qatar. Elvira is one of the greats, a fantastic, funny, characterful, energetic, wise man who deeply loves his national team and who now, for the second time in two World Cups, thanks to his national team, is through to the semi-final. Elvira, well done, man. All of which means that the semi-finals will not be the classical of world football. I think it used to be England-Germany, but now I'm pretty sure, without a doubt, it's Argentina-Brazil. I don't know if there is anybody who didn't want that semi-final, apart from fans of the teams who stood in the way. Croatians might be saying, well, you can count us as part of that clan. But if you've if you've understood the way in which the thirst for a, a smaller, divided, corrupt, sometimes, country like Argentina, needing to, to outgun, to equal its bigger neighbour, Brazil, if you've watched that over the years and watched the debate about between them about Pelé this, Maradona that, the jealousy between those two men, the messy debate, where does he stand? How do you rate him? Needless, endless comparisons. Because at the, at, the, at the level we've got of Cruyff and, and Beckenbauer and Maradona and Pelé and Messi, Ronaldo Nazario, and I'm sorry, for my taste, Cristiano Ronaldo isn't in the debate. But at that level, it's a needless debate about who's the best, who is better. It's about personal taste. It's about personal choice. And if you're sitting there going, well, for me, it was Cristiano. You know, fair fucks. But if you've watched all that bubbling broth and watched last summer's Copa America final, where with that out question, I, I, I yield to nobody here, Argentina went out to boot Brazil off the pitch, particularly Neymar. They won 1-0 in a match which was evocative of how South American teams used to play in the 70s, how Italian teams at the height of Catanaccio would chop their man down all the time. It was a brand of football whereby, as much as I like to see meaty challenges, I like to see revenge being taken out, whether in whether verbally, whether by beautiful skill, or occasionally toe-to-toe aggressive confrontation. I like that. I do not want to see a return to 
to quality players being chopped down all the time, which is how football was when I was growing up and for a very long period into my adulthood, and it's not now. But that's what the Copa America final was last summer when Messi lifted the trophy, Argentina beat Brazil, and I'm pretty sure that given it's the same Argentina squad, give or take, and the same coach, that's what a World Cup semi-final between these two sides would have been. I suppose anybody who, who likes a, a punt on instinct rather than on facts or analysis, immediately Brazil went out. Everybody punts on instinct would have punted on Argentina going through. What greater propulsion forward for a driven, hard-nosed Argentina side than Brazil being out. Nothing to do with Croatia or them underestimating Modric and company, just simply, we have to go through now. What did you think of the game at Education City? What did you enjoy about it? What did you dislike about it? Is this turning into Messi's World Cup? He's had phases, touches, moments, not dominating entire matches, often choosing blind alleys, often a little bit slow in, in the decision-making or the eruption of speed compared to the Messi of his great days. That's non-negotiable. And then there have been moments throughout almost every game where he's done something extraordinary, something that relights everybody's torch for him because he produces the unimaginable. That pass for Argentina's first goal. And yeah, the lovely way in which our fullback, Molina, takes the ball and finishes. But it's inexplicable how Messi's vision, that radar vision, the first person that I heard talking about it in a fully-fledged way, irrespective of how Messi played, sometimes as a, a winger, sometimes as a 10 in junior football at, at Football Club Barcelona, the first person I saw talking about Messi's... Because he was an individualist for a long time. But Pep Guardiola was the first to say, as, the, as he was the first to make him the position where, where Messi played his greatest football, which is a combination between a 10 and a, and a false nine, Guardiola talked about the way in which Messi scans the pitch, stores information, and when he erupts, makes choices not based on instinct only, but based on an accumulation of visual information which he processes at a speed far quicker than his boots or his limbs are moving. And, and that's what happened last night when he slotted that left foot pass without looking back to see where Molina was into a, a crowd. And let there be no doubt that the laser-guided pass was absolutely meant because we've seen that a thousand times. <laughs> let's, let's nobody hope that there's a bit of speculation there. It was extraordinary. There was another messy moment in that I find myself completely at odds with the way people talk about penalties now, where if one boot touches another boot in the penalty area, it's a foul. Absolute nonsense. So did I think that the, the, the touch on Acuna was a foul? I absolutely didn't. It wasn't reviewed. Um, by the Spanish referee. I think it's Hernandez. Hernandez was VAR. I'm talking about him rather than Mateo Laws. And I'm going to, to some extent, I'm going to draw a veil over Mateo Laws because you get what you pay. If you, what's the expression? If you hear hooves, don't look for a zebra. It'll be a horse, which is to say, normally in life, it's the obvious. 
If you appoint Mateo Laws to a revenge vendetta game like Holland-Argentina, which ended in acrimony the last time they met in the World Cup semi-final, which was prefaced by various remarks by Di Maria, by Van Hal. There's going to be bad feeling. In matches of bad feeling, Mateo Laws' tendency to actively become a protagonist takes over. And therefore, I had a, had a message during the game from a Dutch friend of, my, friend of mine, Richard Dubold. <laughs> His expression was, how much has the referee been paid? Whereas every Argentinian reaction so far has been an outrage of even greater um, extent, saying, we were, Messi said, we were fearful before the match because we know what he's like. There's an extraordinary story because um, when Maradona died, Leo Messi was in his house wondering how in the next game he could pay tribute to Diego Maradona. And he himself explains that he was, his, his wife Antonella said, Look, what are you, you going to do in the game tomorrow for Barca? And Messi said he didn't know. And he said, well, I'm going to have a little look if there's an old Argentina strip um, somewhere that I can take to the game and show somehow. And he wandered up to a room and he said that there was one of his rooms in his house where the door's always closed. It's a room they don't use. And for some reason, this is Messi's own telling, not mine. The door was open and on a chair there was a Newell's Old Boys shirt, a Maradona shirt that Maradona had, had given him or that somehow Messi and Maradona had, had some connection over this shirt. And of course, Newell's Old Boys was the team um, that Messi had supported when he was a kid. In fact, Messi's dad had taken him once to see uh, Maradona in a short spell. He played for Newell's and Messi had forgotten that he had this shirt. He said it was lying there on a on a chair and he's, he has it told it in a way to make it sound a little bit paranormal because he'd forgotten he had the shirt. The room that it was in was usually the door was closed. The door was open this time. He takes the shirt. He wears it under his shirt when he scores for Barca that day. Matteo Laws not only books him, irrespective of it being a, a, a particular tribute to the recently deceased Diego Maradona, but in the notes when he books him, Matteo Laws, who's idiosyncratic and eccentric and usually quite a good referee, notes down, I booked Lionel Messi for taking off his Barca shirt and showing underneath that Newell's old boy's shirt from 93-94 in tribute to late Diego Maradona. And in other words... His referee notes were were prosaic and and showing that he understood the importance of the moment, but he still booked Messi. So Messi said post match FIFA to blame they they shouldn't be appointing a referee of that quality for this game and blah 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 blah. But I didn't agree with their penalty. I just didn't think the touch was sufficient, and I do not believe that we should be in an era where if where if one boot touches another, that constitutes a foul. I think it's just utter bullshit. Nonetheless, Messi's, the way in which he converted the penalty was just glorious. And then I have to take issue with Messi because post-match, he's had, is it a real go at Veghorst? Messi's been in the middle of an interview and Veghorst has been trying to get near him to wait until the interview's finished so that they can swap jerseys. And Messi stops the interview with an Argentinian. I think it's with TYC, which is the television channel, the, the online channel which he, he most works with. And he stops the interview to go, what are you looking at, idiot? 
What are you doing? Get, get out of here. Get on your way, idiot. Calling him Bobo. <laughs> Messi gives Veghorst a real mouthful. Does the same to, goes and does the same to Van Hal at the end of the match. Goes right up, almost nose to nose with Van Hal on the touchline once the, get, once the game's over. And I take issue with Messi because Messi in an interview then says, Van Hal, big mouth, always saying that he espouses beautiful football. And then what he does is he gets the big guys on and lumps the ball forward. Well, hold on, it worked. That's not illegitimate. One of the things that I most have to get used to in, in Spanish football over the years has been them having a high church idea about what football should be, which at the moment is keep the ball, move it quickly, technical skills above all, try and technically and cleverly open a game up. Well, <laughs> they then say when they're confronted with a team that plays a completely different brand of football, it's really regular to hear Spanish players saying, well, all brands of football are acceptable. If the other, if the rival wanted to play a different way, it was down to us to, which is all very gentlemanly and good, but it didn't sit with Messi, who was like, just put the ball and lump the ball up. Well, it worked. The two things to say, for my taste anyway, and I hope I haven't gone on too long, but when we got Luke, Luke de Jong, is a terrific footballer, absolutely terrific footballer. He might, he's not the quickest sprinter, but he's got a terrific brain. He's technically gifted and he should have been used more by Holland during this tournament, in my opinion. But when he and, and Weghorst come, come on, the way in which Holland don't lump it directly straight to them long and look for knockdowns, they look to get wide and put the ball in. And the first goal, I thought, well, that's um, going to end up being, in my opinion, one of the best goals that we see from a header in this tournament because the ball in is sensational and the header, which is timed beautifully by Veghorst, is from a distance out where it should be difficult to score. It's against a good goalkeeper in Emiliano Martinez, a friend of the big interview. There was a stage, as I tweeted last night, where there were three big interview guests playing in a World Cup um, quarterfinal, something I was very proud of indeed, in that um, Virgil van Dijk and Emmy Martinez and of course Luke de Jong all on the pitch at the same time. Where in one of the one of the studios who were broadcasting last night amongst the hundreds that were broadcasting this World Cup quarterfinal all over the world, the studio contained Rio Ferdinand and um, Pablo Sabaleta. So in terms of the BBC's coverage and, and that match, there were five big interview victims, guests participating, which I was quite proud of because each of them gave terrific interviews. Go back into our archive and find them if you want to. But the ball in um, to, to Veghurst was delivered absolutely beautifully by Berghaus and the header was magnificent. And I thought that would be Veghurst's best ever World Cup goal. And then came the free kick. My God, it's just glorious when you see intelligence which has been practiced coming to fruition and the way in which Holland managed to split the Argentina wall the delivery from Cooper Miners needed to be perfect and then Veghorst using his body to to take and turn and finish it was just an unbelievable goal gorgeous and yes it was a little bit like that night I was there in Saint-Étienne, 
when Argentina eliminated England. The free kick that they scored that evening was very, very similar to Holland's last night. And it was a thing of shimmering beauty. The penalties, the way in which the Paredes should have been booked for a lunging tackle and then should have been booked again for booting the ball at the Holland substitutes. The way in which players went nose to nose. Edgar Davids had to step in as a... Edgar Davids had to step in as a peacemaker. The the bad blood, the, the, the way the Argentinians celebrated at the Dutch players when the final penalty went in. If you genuinely think that that was improper or repulsive, then you've been watching a different sport than I have all my life. We absolutely need and thrive upon stories and, and impulses of revenge and I'll show you and take that, get stick it up you. That's, that's part of sport. Bad blood. It shouldn't end in anybody doing physical damage to somebody else that, that stops them participating in a match or stops them participating further in a tournament. But edge and, and revenge... They're central parts of the competitive aggression that make you a winner, that make you a champion. Anybody says otherwise is wrong. So Emilio Martinez, (laughs) when he celebrated his second save, leaping up and down and and beseeching the crowd, which felt like uh, as if it was a match in a bombonera, the the way he reacted and, and then afterwards said it because... He read, he felt that Van Hal had been insulting to them by saying, if this match goes to penalties, we'll have the advantage, we'll win it. That motivated him. And therefore, he talked a lot, Emmy Martinez talked a lot about Van Hal post-match. Might have looked a little bit um, a little bit bullish in how he celebrated his second penalty. But he saved a second penalty. He saved two penalties in a World Cup quarter-final. Just as much as I appreciated Livakovic saying, nothing to see here. Just me doing my job, just me eliminating Brazil. I equally enjoyed Emmy Martinez going, take that, take that, Holland. I've got passionate and noisy and and loquacious about the football side, but it's time to close by saying, Grant Wall, you should be taking your loyal band of readers and viewers into the semi-final and the final. Some of the things that have stained this World Cup needed to be pointed out. He did so. He's no longer with us. It's a shocking event and it needs to be remembered at the top and bottom of this broadcast where otherwise I've tried to celebrate things that stood out to me in a World Cup which has left me bewildered, tired, confused like no other World Cup of the eight that I've been at in one capacity or another. I'll say to all of you, um, thank you for listening and I'll also just briefly... Um, say to all of you, thank you for sending in questions. Robert, Robert Ryan, of course, Chris Hennigan, Andrew Anderson. I'm going to get back to you with another um, update on both the post-match of England-France and how things stand for Spain. But this felt overwhelmingly important to talk about Grant Wall and to talk about the first two quarterfinals of the World Cup. Thanks all for being there.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.